Happy New Year. I can't believe it's 2024 already. I hope everyone recovered from their holiday hangovers, got to spend some much needed time off with family and friends, and is ready to start off the year with a bang. I love this time of year. Everyone is so motivated in goal setting and reflection mode, and it's beautiful to witness. But let's not forget, motivation might get you going, but it's fleeting. Discipline and taking daily action is the only thing that's going to get you to your goal. I'm so excited to be recording again, to be back in action. It's a new year and a new season of Miss Independent, Or should I rebrand the channel to Mrs. Independent because I just got married December 2nd, over a month ago. I'll do a full recap for you guys now that I'm posting content again. Make sure you're following along on TikTok. And I know I've been away for longer than a hiatus. I've had to deal with a lot of loss and grief this year. And I just needed some time to heal. I'll explain this in a little bit more detail in the next episode where I talk about how to approach death from a financial perspective and what to do when a loved one dies. But on a happier note, I'm finally ready to create from a place of passion again, and this season will be bigger and better than ever. A lot of people take time to reflect and think about the life that they want to live in the new year and around the holidays, and I've been seeing a lot of content from people moving abroad, becoming digital nomads, and it's been really inspiring. Literally today, I read an article in the Globe and Mail about how Canada is one of the only eight advanced countries where the average income is lower than before the pandemic. And this is because inflation's outpacing growth in nominal incomes. I'll post this in the show notes so you can read it after. There seems to be a trend where Canadians are moving abroad in search of places where their dollar goes further. So without further ado, for the first episode of 2024, I'm interviewing a good friend of mine, Andrew Sarna. Andrew spent the last five years building out the Fourth Lane Investment Platform. He has experience across asset classes and building Canadian pension plan style portfolios for ultra high net worth clients. He's led multiple investments, including private equity co-investments, credit managers, absolute return managers, to name a few. Prior to joining Fourth Lane, Andrew began his career at the Kraft Heinz company under 3G Capital where he was the finance lead in Canada for logistics, supply chain losses, and working capital. Andrew is a CFA charter holder, holds an HBA from the Ivy Business School, and a Bachelor of Engineering Science with a specialization in integrated engineering from Western University. He graduated from both programs with honors, and you can follow his work through his daily note, The Daily Charts. I'll make sure to link his newsletter in the show notes so that you can reference it afterwards. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Andrew, thank you so much for being on the Misfit Independent podcast. So excited to have you here and dive into a conversation about your background, what you do, and get to know you a little bit. Awesome. Very excited to be here. Well, let's let's start at the very beginning. So you've got a, a massively impressive career. I like to start these conversations, especially when I'm interviewing somebody and understand their story kind of from the beginning, how they got to where they are. So talk to me a little bit about your journey into finance. Um, I feel like a lot of people, it's not necessarily a, a straight line. I would say when I compare myself to the, the other kids that I went to business school with, I didn't necessarily have a parent working in the field. So 
I wasn't on that straight and narrow journey, but grew up in Whitby, went to Western for engineering. After my second year, I got into Ivy. Ivy was really the, the gateway into understanding what finance was. From there, I, I think business school, there's a lot of herd mentality. There's really four careers, as you would know from Shulek. There's sort of four careers that people pursue. It's consulting, finance, marketing, and accounting. And I think not having previous experience in any of those fields or necessarily someone guiding you towards one, you're sort of playing the field. And I think that was a mistake. It's a lot easier if you put all your eggs in one basket, you recruit for only that thing, you network for only that thing. And it just helps make sure you're very intentioned and not spreading yourself too thin. After school, I worked a year and a half at, at a crop times, which is owned by 3G Capital, I have an equity firm. This was probably the first steps towards that. I mean, working at crop times, there certainly was an opportunity to transition into a more private equity type role in the finance department at crop times. It's a lot of Brazilian bankers that you're working with or ex-Brazilian bankers that you're working with. So again, you're sort of straddling between CPG and the finance function. But a year and a half working at Craft Times, I got a note from a, a former professor who uh, was working with a former uh, senior member of Ontario Teachers who was starting a new firm. And uh, he had reached out to see if I'd be interested in, uh, in interviewing for that role. And the rest was sort of history. That was about five years. Now I've done my CFA and the firm that I currently work for is what I would call a multifamily office, which in layman's terms is really just managing money for high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals and Canadian families and ultra high net worth. How I would, what that is typically classified is families with more than $20 million of investable assets. Andrew, thank you for clarifying what ultra high net worth is and, and how we classify that. There's a couple of things that I want to dig into for somebody that may not necessarily come from a finance background. So you mentioned you were connected to your current, the current CEO, I guess, through a professor and he had left Ontario teachers. So can you just dive into somebody who's not as familiar with the pension funds, what teachers is, what they do? Yeah, I, I think maybe if I can describe the types of investors first and then yep. describe what Ontario teacher says, I think that would make sense. So I think, and, and we're trying to bridge this gap, but between uh, institutional investors and sort of retail investors, uh, retail investors would be an average person off the street trading stocks. And then I think the next evolution of it is you sort of have investment advisors that are typically deemed retail, but they're sort of investing in mutual funds or putting their clients money in mutual funds and ETFs and, and that sort of like, but ultimately for the most part, an investment advisor, they sort of straddle investor, but also they are salesmen because that's how they ultimately make their book. And how do they ultimately make money is by raising more assets. And then you have this, these groups of people, and you can look at, there's a couple pivotal or 
organizations that help pave the way. But essentially what some of these institutional investors did is they were focused a hundred percent on investing. And I would almost call them professional investors. Nothing, they didn't have to worry about the sales side and they could spend all their time on investing. And because they were spending all their time on investing, they started going into various different silos and trying to figure out where they could improve the investment process, where they could eliminate fees, where they could find higher returns, where they could find better risk adjusted returns. And this is how some of these newer alternatives as to classes were invented. There's, I mean, a handful of pretty important organizations. You have the Yale Endowment, and then you have Canadian, some of the Canadian pensions. The Canadian pensions are largely viewed as some of the most sophisticated investors in the world. Another way to think about it is they're viewed as some of the smartest investors in the world. They were pioneers in some asset classes like infrastructure, private equity, hedge funds, et cetera. And that's really what I mean by, by an institutional investor. So when you look at a retail portfolio, what you would typically see is stocks and bonds. And I think the classic portfolio is really a 60-40 portfolio. But when you look at some of these more sophisticated institutions, you might see private equity, real estate, infrastructure, hedge funds, equities, and bonds, and then uh, maybe even some miscellaneous assets. But I think that's really the, the big difference between what you would see at a Ontario Teachers Pension Plan versus what you would see in an average person's portfolio off the street. That's, that was a really in-depth clarification, Andrew. Thank you so much for diving into that. How do the pension funds differ from the family office and how you lay capital? Yeah, well, so like the Canadian pensions and uh, sort of evolved over the past 20 years, it's, a, it's important to know that if you had looked at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan in, in the 1990s, they were still only investing in, in T-bills. They were only investing in fixed income. And it's really over the past 30 years that they've started investing in other asset classes. Like these asset classes really didn't necessarily exist. So I think of it almost on, almost like a journey on the way to sophistication and family offices are somewhere on that journey. So they started out as retail investors really. And that's sort of like the base case. We all started, sort of started as stocks and bonds and they're on this journey to begin adding different asset classes to, to their portfolio. So there's the same, the family office world. If you meet one family office, you've met one family office, which sort of means that like all family offices are super different and they have super varying levels of sophistication. So some might invest in private equity, real estate, and might look like a pension plan. Others might be hundred percent stocks. Some families might have the infrastructure and they might build generational wealth that they're able to pass on to their grandchildren, their grandchildren's grandchildren's, some family offices day trade and might squander that wealth within a, within a single generation. So, so it's, it's tough to paint with broad brushes, but how I would summarize it is on the investing side, the more money you have, 
if you can shave 10 basis points or if you can earn an extra percent, it makes all that more difference to focus on it. So you and I, if we earn an extra 1% on a $100,000 portfolio, that's a thousand dollars. But if, if you're managing a hundred million dollar portfolio and you're able to earn, a extra, earn an extra 1%, well, that's a million dollars. So it might make sense to try to uncover the, go a little deeper and uncover those rocks. What's the total assets that you guys have under management? We have about 500 million under management. Wow. So I can definitely see how, how some of those percentages at a scale like that make a massive impact. For sure. The more money you have, the, the more time you can allocate to shaving basis points or trying to earn an extra couple percent. And, and definitely fascinating. You're talking about different types of expertise or infrastructure that different family offices have. So I understand completely we can't paintbrush them. Every family office operates as its own organization, has its own expertise. Like I've seen a lot of family offices focused on real estate because okay. the family made money in real estate development, mm-hmm. right? So they use that skill set in their investing strategy. Yep. Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly it. And then you have situations where the, com- the family knows real estate, they're comfortable with real estate. And if it's not broke, don't fix it. The other thing that you sort of see is these families have so much money that, yeah, maybe they should diversify from Canadian real estate, but it's so much money, it doesn't matter. Funny. Okay. It, so- it really, it really distorts your perception of wealth. What's the craziest thing that you've seen in the family office? Like the, have you ever seen any kind of expenses or anything that was just so outlandish that made you go, wow? Yeah. I mean, I was, I'm going to mention two things. One, just like ridiculous allowances for, for kids. So things like a monthly allowance of five figures for for your adult child. And then the, the other ridiculous thing or sad thing you see is, I mean, I think we fall into this trap where we think, yeah, it solves all, all problems, but I mean, you can look in the globe and mail and there's numerous examples of money tearing large Canadian families apart. And it's like trying to sue your family or other big disputes that just absolutely tear a, a family apart, which is, I mean, we, I think we there's a common misconception that money is going to fix your problems, but it just introduces their problems. Yeah. More money, more problems. Exactly. Yeah. But Andrew, let's, let's go back to your family office specifically. So you mentioned 500 million in assets under management. You are kind of on the sales side, but you're also involved in some of the investing strategies. So walk me through what is your day-to-day? Like, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, I mean, I would just clarify that it's a, a multi-family office maybe is worthwhile to flag. So there's a handful of different families okay. uh, that we work with. And then on the sale and investment side, I, I probably spent 50% um, of my time on the relationship management side of things. And then 50% of my time on, on the investment side of things. So on the relationship management side of things, I think what you quickly realize, uh, yeah, 
Baltic family office, what you, what you really are, or family office, what you really are is you're sort of a glorified wealth advisor. You're just a wealth advisor that is working with very rich people. And what is a wealth advisor's role? Again, I think you probably talk about this a little bit, but you can, for most wealth advisors, you can build a portfolio of ETFs that is largely going to replicate what your wealth advisor is doing. And, and the times you're really needed is during periods of stress. You sometimes need to talk your clients off the edge. You're sort of just a, a therapist for their financial, for their financial affairs. So that side of it is really just maintaining good rapport. I think the important side on the, uh, the reporting thing on the sales and relationship management side of things is trust. I think there's a misconception that because you have $200 million, you're a sophisticated investor. The answer is typically no. The reason they're hiring you is because you're supposed to be that sophisticated investor and take care of them. And it all comes down to trust. So. There's the relationship side of things and just building relationships. And then on the investment side, I would say how, how my job differs from a traditional wealth advisors. We're just evaluating more asset classes, some more investments, going back to that conversation or going back to you, the standard portfolio sort of stocks and bonds, the difference that you would get allocating capital or working with us is you're also going to get exposure to things like private equity, real estate, hedge funds, et cetera. And this is all in an effort to either achieve higher returns or better risk adjusted returns. What's the minimum that an ultra high net worth family has to have? Yeah, we tend to, we tend to work with families that have more than $5 million of investable assets. Okay. So not your, your everyday person is going to come and work with you guys. You definitely need to achieve a certain level of wealth in order to have exposure to some of these, these asset classes. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's an interesting point, Nico. Like some of the strategies that we're accessing within our portfolio, if they're what are called institutional type strategies, they're not available to retail investors and if you don't have $10 million to, to allocate to them, they're going to tell you to get lost. You're not, you're not worth their time. So I want to move back to that point you made about the, the allowances. And I want to dig into that. How did you come across that? And like, what other kinds of things are you exposed to in the business? What else outside of just investing does the fund do? What do you mean by outside of just investing? Like, are there, is there any other way that you help the business? Is there a consulting arm? Is there, I know you're, you're just essentially investing, let's say a minimum of $5 million for the, for the investor, but do you help in any kind of other way? Yeah. Um, what what you can sort of expect from, uh, a multifamily office or a family office is they will have a bunch of other different services that, that they provide to these families. And again, I think this is more differentiation. The more money that you have, the better services you can sort of get access to. So it might be things like your, we'll also do some tax planning or we'll hire a tax planner, structuring with the lawyers. You'll also see things like concierge at some family offices. So 
there are some family offices where it might be, they might book restaurant reservations for you. And then I think unsurprisingly by a little bit different than you would expect. Yeah. For some clients will be, will be tasked with like booking them a private jet. That's awesome. Surprise that they DJ. just don't use. Yeah. Surprise. They don't use Amex concierge. Like you have better things to do than the book reservations. Right. I'm, I'm assuming it's not you that's actually booking them, but. A hundred percent. But uh, yeah, I, it's not me that's booking them. But if you have that level of wealth, you sort of expect the white glove treatment. That's fair money talks. Okay. So I think we dug into the multifamily office quite a bit. I'm sure the listeners have a better understanding of what you do. But outside of just spending your day 50-50 on the investing and the sales side, there's also a massive contribution to the everyday investor that we haven't talked about, and that's daily charts. So I did post about it, actually. This is a really funny story. So I posted about daily charts and how it's a newsletter that I read every morning, and it, it's visual, and it gives me some context into what the investing landscape looks like. And what a lot of you may not know is the person who actually writes that newsletter is Andrew Sarda. So Andrew, I want to dive into the newsletter a little bit, how you have time to write every day and how much of your day you allocate to that. Yeah. First of all, I will say thank you for the shout out. Please like and subscribe. Yeah. How it, how it really got started was you're ultimately, you're almost like going through a beauty contest with these wealthy families. You're trying to convince them that you're the best steward for, for their wealth. And it's a, it's a tool to sort of get your name out there, demonstrate that you're, you have the pulse on the market and hopefully you can provide value to people. So it started out actually as a, as a way to engage with a single prospect that we had. And I was just doing it over email, sending it to maybe five people. And, and from the very, I said, okay, maybe need to look at other platforms, brought it over to, to Substack, which sort of opened it up to anyone to be able to follow. I, I mean, from there, I, uh, it, it's really just a, a word of mouth and a type exercise where it sort of grew organically to about a thousand subscribers, which I'd hope to continue to grow. And I mean, in 2024, one of my goals is to be a little bit more intentional about it. And then how, how do I make time for it? It's, it's things I'm coming across in my day to day. Like part of my job is just having my pulse on the finger of the market, reading research and trying to uncover new investment opportunities. So as part of that process, I'm just reading things and coming across interesting tidbits of, of information and I started to really just become an exercise of during my day. I sort of bookmark things, flag anything that was interesting. And I spend about 45 minutes to an hour at night, just throwing it all together. And really, I think of myself as I'm just sort of curating a short list of things I'm coming across during my day and hopefully educating some other people in the process. I think it's a great way to differentiate yourself as a thought leader to have content and daily charts is a fantastic way. Visually, it's very easy to read. It's very educational and 
I'm sure you have resources or people that you follow. So your ability to curate content is impeccable. So I want you to, to just know that. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. It's, I, I think it's also brand building exercise for yourself. Again, people get this email from Andrew Sarna every day and to that average folk, uh, that might not mean anything, but it's crazy. Some of the things that, that just happened out of the blue. And uh, I mean, some comments that I've gotten is I was golfing with the, uh, a Canadian billionaire. He's like, I feel like I'm talking to you every day because I get this note from you, even though we haven't talked in a couple months or there was one time a friend was booking us in that, uh, at Barry's boot camp, and they were like, is that the guy who writes the email? So, and, and then I, I mean, going back to the, to the, to the business side of things, I had, there was a Canadian entrepreneur that somehow came across the newsletter and was like, Hey, can you help me invest my $20 million for my exit? So that's awesome. So it's a lead gen system too. You have to have distribution. Yeah. There's a lot of power in distribution networks as I've come to learn. So keep yeah. doing it. Yeah. That's what Miss Independent is, right? Yeah. 100%. I actually, I could see a world where the, uh, the next evolution of the wealth management industry is sort of dominated by finance influencers to an extent. Now, I think it's a, it's a interesting conundrum because there are also grifters out there that will take advantage of people mm-hmm. but at the same time i see a world where this fin dependent could have a wealth advisory business where they get through the distribution on social media people are engaging with engaging with you and you're sort of paid to help them on the wealth management side a challenge with that is that a lot of influencers don't have the accreditation to give financial advice Right. Like I'm a certified money coach, not a certified investment advisor or a CFP. Right. So I try to teach people how to invest, but I will never tell you how to build your portfolio, what stocks to buy, what stocks I buy to, to the, like a very detailed extent. Right. Yeah. It's highly regulated, which presents the highest barrier again, to be able to give investment advice. I had to write my CFA and get my portfolio manager with the Ontario Securities Commission to be able to give investment advice and recommend an investment. But I think there's an opportunity for uh, a late label service provider to sort of integrate with, with you where you're the distribution side of the business and then you plug into a platform that has those accreditations and make sure you're in line from a compliance perspective. Definitely. And that's why a lot of us partner with the big bags with fintechs, you know, like Questrade, Wealthsimple, it's, it's Shout wide. out Questrade. <laughs> Shout out Questrade. <laughs> well, Wealthsimple too. I have an affiliate program with Wealthsimple, but Questrade, I did do a big, big partnership with them earlier in the year. But anyways, Andrew, I want to dive into where you get your insights from, because you've, you've got to have a very strong pulse in the market in order to present yourself as a thought leader. So I want to dive into your feelings and your perception of what's going on in the market right now. Yeah, uh, it's certainly an interesting time uh, in the market right now. 2023 is just wrapping up and it was sort of the opposite of 2022, where the things that really struggled in 2022 
were sort of the leaders in, in 2023. And in the past two months, three months, things have even, nope, two months, things have even changed more. So you had first an announcement from the treasury on how they were going to fund the U.S. government, which was going to inject some liquidity into to financial markets. They were going to fund from the short end rather than the long end, which would tighten financial conditions. And then on, in mid-December, Jerome Powell came out and surprised the market being extremely dovish. We thought we would sort of be in an environment that was higher for longer because the Fed didn't want to risk reigniting inflation. Then the Fed did a complete U-turn and decided to guide the market towards cuts and the dot plot shows three cuts in 2023. So inflation is not a worry anymore. And what you're sort of seeing in markets right now is the re-emergence of some of the things we saw in 2021. What's doing well right now? Well, it's like the meme stocks, the speculative tech and, and crypto. And that's what happens when you inject liquidity and financial conditions are easing. The most speculative and risky assets are going to rally. So now it becomes a question of, is the Fed going to hold this path or are we going to get a few data points of the economy reaccelerating and we could end up in a period like Q3 2023, where the Fed has to tighten again. And if the Fed is tightening again, that could be mean another hike. And that would probably be pretty disastrous for risk markets because right now risk markets are positioned for cuts. Mm -hmm. So the, the cuts are obviously priced into the market. So the market is pricing in six cuts right now. Yeah. The Fed is telling us three cuts. So we'll, we'll see what happens. So the markets are being overly optimistic. We've moved from a place of fear way over to a place of greed. Would you say that's, that's a right current? Yeah, well, 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 that, that could be the summary. But again, markets could be forward-looking and, and markets could be right. I think the, the interesting part about markets is, is no one knows. And if you have a differentiated view and you are, are right, that's, that's an opportunity to make money. Interesting point there. Do you, you think we're still going to go into a soft landing or will there be no landing at all? If the Fed had a fall through with higher for longer, I think the risks would have skewed towards a, a hard landing. Actually, I think we're more likely to see the economy reaccelerate and likely rates stay higher for longer, but that the market is certainly ours is currently in a place of denial right now. The soft landing is difficult. That's what markets are pricing in. And again, markets could be right. But if you look back in history, since the 1970s, there's really only been one soft landing in uh, 1994, 1995 type period. So if you look at history, the odds are sort of against a, uh, a soft landing, but the fun part about markets is someone might tell you soft landing, someone might tell you hard landing. The, the truth is no one has any idea what's going on. They're just making educated guesses. It was a really interesting point that you mentioned about finding opportunity where others don't see it. Crypto is something that I know both you and I are passionate about. Is that still something that you are optimistic about for the next, you know, five, 10 years? For, I, I think it's important to differentiate crypto and maybe Bitcoin. 
Bitcoin's sort of like digital gold, or that's the way I think about it at least. And that's if the government is going to con continue printing. And I think that is the only way we can get out of our, our debt problems in the developed world. So I think that that probably does well. Of course, something could happen. You never know. But again, it's, it's sort of an opportunity because I think two to 5% of the world's population own it and believe it's going to be a thing. And because most investors are, think it is a scam or a Ponzi scheme, if you're right, again, it's an opportunity to make money because it is a differentiated view. On the crypto side of things, that's an interesting question because there are some established tokens like Ethereum, Sol, but there are also meme cries like PayPay and Bonds, which was a recent one that was a, it was a recent pump and dump. So long story, long way to say yes, but I think it will be a bumpy forward. I do like that you differentiated Bitcoin specifically because it has, you know, a having point and there's a limited supply versus a token like Ethereum. A lot of people will group those into the same bucket where they equate Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and they invested both of those with the same mindset. Or Doge. Or Doge, yeah. TBT. Should we just, should we just turn this into a Bitcoin protest? We can, we can. But I do, I want to get into your experience like worldwide. And there's a reason I'm talking about Bitcoin and crypto. And it's because Andrew right now is living in the Cayman Islands. I mean, currently Ooh. as of, as of this moment, you're probably in Canada, but let, let's dive into that a little bit. Like what's the past year been like for you? Where, where have you been? What have you been up to? Yeah. So super lucky where we've had an opportunity to see much of the world. But in the past year, we have spent, I guess, mainly on two continents, but in various different locations, sort of experimenting with where we could work remotely from. So we spent at least a month in each one of these locations over the past year or past 14 months. So Whistler, Victoria, Lisbon slash Portugal, Cayman and, and, and Toronto. What was it like working and living in Portugal for an extended period of time? Yeah, Portugal is interesting because they introduced some policy, which, or a program called the Golden Visa program, where they were trying to attract digital nomads. They're actually walking some of that back because they had so many digital nomads walk to Portugal that is putting a lot of pressure on the housing market and pricing locals out of the housing market. So we decided to try it out. I think what was difficult about it was even though there isn't like, you can certainly get around only speaking English, there's still a language barrier. And I mean, I think what one of the learnings from living in all these places was differentiating between a city and sort of optimizing for a beautiful place to live, which I would just broadly classify as sort of mountains and beaches. Living in a city. My favorite part about it is the good food and Portugal sure has a lot of cheap, good food and good wine. I think that was my favorite part about it. But I think one of the things I like about living in a city or the good part about a city is the density of your network. And we were in Portugal for just about a month and we didn't have any network in the city. So you were sort of living in the city with 
I feel like a lot of the good parts about city living not really are not really getting to experience the good parts about city living. We actually, in our time in Portugal, we did a weekend trip to Madeira, which is a Portuguese island off the coast of Morocco. And we were there for five days and we said, you know what, I wish we had just spent the entire trip there because you had the good food and the good wine. It was super cheap and you were living on a beautiful island. Whereas like city, there's aspects of crime, which we didn't really experience, fortunately, but dirty, noisy. That's fair. Did you have a community in Madeira? We did not have a community. So again, I think that was the downside to Portugal. If you're only there a month and if you wanted to take this path of being a digital nomad, where you're just hopping city to city, you almost want to live in a community where there's other people doing that. So maybe like one of the Selena hostels you, I hear about, maybe sounds like a good idea, but a month isn't really a long enough time to, to make friends and the people we sort of interacted with were locals and maybe some tourists who were there for just a week. So you didn't really have an opportunity to build community. That's fair. I, I do disagree with you though, Andrew, about a month not being a long enough period of time to make friends. I think about like what people don't know is Andrew and I actually met on exchange in, in Prague. And I think about moments where, you know, you're in a city for three days and you go out for one night and you've made 10 new friends. And sure, they're, they're not lifelong friends, right? But you still follow them on Instagram. You still keep up with them here and there. And if I was to ever go back to that city, those are the first people I'm hitting up. Yeah, I think there's, there's two things that made it a little bit harder than traveling is one, going back to the Selena concept, we, we didn't have like a hustle area to, to go meet other people in a similar situation. We were sort of in an Airbnb. So then that begs the question is you sort of got to maybe hit up like exercise classes to meet people or be intentional and go to meetups. And then the, the other side of that is I'm too old now to go to the bar and meet people. So yeah, uh, in my old age, you're you're putting yourself in that environment less frequently. That is a fair assessment. So you spent a month in Portugal, some time in Whistler. How long were you guys in Whistler in, or in vain? I'll call this in, in British Columbia in general, because there's, I know you guys spent a lot of time in Victoria too. Yeah, we were. So we were four weeks in Portugal, six weeks in Cayman, probably, well, one month in Whistler, another two months in Victoria maybe, and then the rest in in Toronto. Okay. So six weeks in Cayman, was that enough time for you to fall in love with the place? And was that when you decided to move down there? Yeah. I mean, I think the first differentiation was, was moving to a smaller city and that the interesting part about Cayman or Cayman, as they call it, it's a place where many people from the island. So the stat that I heard thrown around was 60% of people are, are not from the island. So you're sort of throwing yourself in a situation where a lot of people are in similar situations, which again, I think it makes it easier to meet people. And then the, the other side of that is the one community is easier to build. And then the second part of that is, I mean, it's winter in Canada. You're on these beautiful beaches. It's hard not to like it. So you've 
are foregoing the digital nomad life and you're settling and came in so that you can build community. Yeah, I think, I mean, we, we tried a bunch of these places and it's almost like it was a great exercise because you sort of take a test drive and then we made the buying decision to, to settle down somewhere. So we haven't had a place for, for 12 months. So we've just sort of been hopping around Airbnbs for a month or two months at a time. And it's, it's been a really interesting experience because you're almost like trying out all these different locations. Even in Toronto, we were in three different Airbnbs. So you're living in three different neighborhoods and it gives you a different perspective of the terms or the things you dislike about various different neighborhoods and what you care about. Why I came in over some of the other islands, like Barbados also has a very, very favorable tax environment. So why Cayman versus some of the other places worldwide yeah, you can go? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's a bunch of British overseas territories that may tax you favorably, but I think in this conversation or what was really in our, or on our radar was, or on most Canadians' radars, sorry, Cayman, Barbados, Bermuda. And Bahamas. Dubai is another place that a lot yeah. of people are moving to right now because of no income tax. Singapore, Hong Kong. It's funny meeting, meeting the tax guys. And I mean, I think where this thought initially came into my mind was after I read the sovereign individual, then we can get into that later, I okay. guess, if you want, but. Well, let's uh, dive into it now. What was in the book that inspired you? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really interesting because it's a, it's a book written in the 90s and really the thesis is, is in the digital world, boundaries are going to be broken down. In the olden days, you used to have to live in a city because that was where the factory was. And so that's where the jobs were. And the thesis is really, given that we're no longer going into factories and you have the opportunity to move around and borders are essentially meaningless, these countries are going to have to compete for you, just like you're sort of an employee, the countries that treat you the best are going to attract their the smartest and brightest because they can work anywhere in the world now. So even I remember going on a call with our tax advisor and one of the first things he said to me was, yeah, I'm having a lot of these calls lately because I mean, ultimately capital is going to flow to where it's treated best. Interesting assessment. Yeah. Okay. I like that a lot. So you worked with a tax advisor. When you're preparing to move, I think that's a very smart thing to do. And anybody that's thinking about moving to a different place where you're treated a little bit more favorably from a tax perspective, highly recommend working with a tax professional. But outside of tax professional, are there any resources that you can recommend for someone, you know, maybe dipping their toes and starting to explore and thinking about this kind of move? Yeah, there is a site called the Nomad Capitalist. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but definitely. I think that is a really great resource or they at least have some clickbaity articles that sort of talk about some of the options out there. They have some paid resources as well from, from my understanding too. Yeah. Well, we'll link a podcast in the bio if you're up for it, but the guy who started the Nomad Capitalist was on Rick Rubin's podcast and that was a pretty good episode. Okay. I'll Hello. definitely listen to it and maybe we can link it in the show notes as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that you're 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 focusing on the on the tax side, but again, I I think it's more of a full package. Tax is obviously an interesting part about it of when you're moving to 
to a new country. But the other side of that is you're just going to go where you're treated best. All these countries have a different value prop. And what you slowly realize if you take a step back, going back to this Portuguese golden visa thing is these countries are going to compete for you because you're highly educated and you're going to contribute to the economy. And it's almost like a, if you think of it as like they're courting you and they want the best and brightest and you should go where they're going to give you the best deal. And there's regions where you might pay some tax, but you get great public service and you might be making some trade-offs, but you might get back that in, in the services that a country might offer. Which is one of the arguments for like free healthcare living in Canada. Yeah, exactly. So it makes sense. Taxes are like a subscription you pay to society, right? And in societies like Cayman, for example, where there's no income tax, the cost of living is very high. I don't think those two are related, but with them not having income tax, what are the social services like? Yeah, they, they also find um, other ways to tax you. I think one of the biggest questions that I get is like, if there's no income tax, how do they fund their government? Which is, is sort of funny, or I, I chuckle at at least because, I mean, if you're not wasteful, don't necessarily need these giant budgets or high income tax to provide the necessary, necessary services. Like I was off Island for two weeks and there's, they upgraded the highway. They expanded it to two lanes. In two weeks. Uh, yeah. Just like this little section, but like, I think it just goes to show like, yes, there's still is functioning public service. It's not like you're driving on dirt roads, but I think some things, yeah, they've don't work as good. So, and this is also a function of working, living in a small place. So Cayman is only about 80 to a hundred thousand people, but yeah, I miss public transport a little bit. Like there's certainly some sacrifices on the public transport side of things. And do you have a car down there? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely need to have a car, but aside from that, it's pretty similar to what you would get in Canada. Like Again, there are negative connotations of going to a Caribbean island from going down on vacation growing up was like, oh, you can't drink the tap water. Well, Cayman, you can drink the tap water. You don't really worry about rolling blackouts. Like they're certainly a, a functioning society without the highest marginal tax rate being 53%. The sovereign individual sort of helped me frame this, but like when you're paying your taxes every year, look at how much you paid and then. It really comes down to a, a buying decision. Did I get value for the X amount of thousands of dollars I, I, I paid in taxes? Some places it, it could be in a situation where you say, yes, like, look, in the U.S., people are like, this is the best place to be in the world, the melting pot. And sure, not all that is driven by government, but you might be happy to pay those taxes to be in New York or Florida. I mean, I'd rather be on a seven mile beach any day than in New York, but that's just me personally. That's fair. That's fair. And part of the reason why we're down there. Definitely. Andrew, I think we'll, we'll end it off here. This was an amazing conversation about your journey and I learned a lot. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Mika. I don't know about you guys, but after that conversation, I'm pretty inspired to start thinking about moving out of Canada. 
So if you guys enjoyed this week's episode, please share it with someone who you think would also benefit from this conversation. New episodes are posted every Wednesday, so I'll see you guys again next week. Ciao for now.